Hi, I'm Mark Stoudemire, and welcome to Season 3 of Get to the Joke. I can't wait for you guys to see what I have in store for you this season. 11 new comics, 11 new stories, unbelievable amount of just advice and just vulnerability about the lives of comedians and how that translates to the jokes that you love to hear on stage. Again, all the content this season will be completely free on my YouTube channel. I just ask that you do me just one small favor. Please like and subscribe to my channel. Please rate and review me wherever you review your podcast. I truly appreciate that you guys do that for me. Uh, again, you can also visit me at my website, markstod.com, where you can see all my upcoming show dates, all of any other content that I put out. Um, again, please leave a comment, like, subscribe to this channel. It means so much to me that you do that. And uh, now without further ado, let's go ahead and get to the joke. I'm not very adventurous, so I try to have friends that do exciting things. A friend of mine went on safari to Africa, and while she was there, she saw a giraffe, and it was very close. It was like 50 yards away. So she took a step towards it, and it didn't run away, and she thought, this is great. I'm going to get to walk right up to a giraffe. So she's slowly creeping towards it, and it never runs away, but after a little while, it's still just as far away as it was at the beginning. And the reason is, a lot of wild animals, they're not stupid. They see you coming. So for every step towards them you take, they just calmly take one step away, so you never get any closer. Now, I've never been to Africa, but I have been to Home Depot. <laughs> and I have seen in the distance, again, a long row of tools. What is that in the underbrush? <gasps> A Home Depot employee. <laughs> Never gotten close enough to ask one a question. Those guys, good at evading predators. The only time you can ask a Home Depot employee a question is if somebody else has already cornered them. <laughs> now you're like a hyena circling a lion's kill, trying to get little scraps of information. Where's the exit? This place is huge. Trim anymore, I just want it out. <laughs> Do you even work here? I'm not so sure. I think some of those employees used to be like you years ago. And they just wandered around until they forgot what they were looking for, couldn't find a way out, and they're like, well, hand me an apron. There's <laughs> some part of the ecosystem now. All right, welcome back to season three of Get to the Joke. I'm here with one of my favorite comics from Philadelphia, 
Doogie Horner, who is a writer, illustrator, and comedian. He's the author of the young adult novel, This Might Hurt a Bit, the holiday classic, A Die Hard Christmas, and many other books. His comedy album, A Delicate Man, was an AV club staff pick. He won over a hostile New York City audience on America's Got Talent 11 years ago at this point, and is a frequent guest on Doug Loves Movies. Doogie, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for I having appreciate- me, Mark. No, I appreciate it. Are you call? Are you? Am I calling you from New York right now? You're calling me from New York State. New York but State, not okay. New York City. We moved oh. out when the pandemic hit. Okay, for <clears throat> real. How now? How has the pandemic been going for you? Because I know since you're like a multi-talented artist, you know both comic, not both, but like comic graphic artist and writer. Have you kind of like used the pandemic to like really? bury yourself into more of the writing artist side yeah i liked the pandemic i don't know <laughs> i shouldn't say that because a lot of people died they're like yeah. oh well my mother didn't like it um <sighs> uh but i mean it was a time for me to just spend time with my family and um yeah. we uh when the pandemic hit we were living in queens okay and we left when they closed the schools. We were like, let's get out of here. I thought they were going to, we like thought they were going to raise the bridges or something like, uh, <laughs> you know, the dark night. But um, so we went out to Massachusetts and stayed with family there. And it was like the woods. It was middle of nowhere. We had beavers and coyotes and leeches. And um, yeah, I, I, I used the time to write and, draw comics and I started drawing comics with my son oh nice and we had a lot of fun doing it we really enjoyed it and um I started drawing a little comic book called Invisible Boy and now that's turned into my next book it's going to be my next book it's going to be three books that's awesome uh, that's the one you're doing with your son right now he and I aren't doing it together anymore. Kids that do okay. this thing where like they'll get super into something for, <laughs> yes. it could be a day, it could be a year. And then they're like the next day, all of a sudden they're like, I'm done. That's the old me, <laughs> you know? So like he and I made tons, like hundreds of pages of comic books. And then awesome. uh, all of a sudden one day he's like, I'm done. <laughs> so now I'm just doing it by myself. But, but yeah, that's the. How old is your the, son now? Because I think when I met you last time, he had just been born. He's uh he just turned six. Yeah, okay. That makes that makes yep. sense. That makes sense. Well, cool. So I guess way I first I mean, I've only met you once and our interactions were very brief. Um, but the way I knew you and was really attracted to your style of comedy was um I heard about you being a Phillies funniest winner, which was amazing. And then you were on America's Got Talent. Mm-hmm. And that whole I mean, you became almost like a folk legend with your audition. I mean, folk and, and I, I'm going to link that Real link, Woody um, Guthrie. Um, kind of like the first question I'm going to ask you is, because I always wanted to ask you this in case this interview gets cut short. How did you get on America's Got Talent? Was it the leverage from winning Philly's Funniest that kind of put you through like maybe a, like, a, like, a, like a shorter line? Or did you actually do the whole process of like waiting in line and auditioning and going through that whole rigmarole? How'd you actually physically get on the show? So Helium said that anybody that wanted to audition could audition and you could skip the line, sort of. Like yeah. you didn't have to stand in. There's a huge line outside 
Yeah. And they're like, you could skip that one. <laughs> there will be, there will still be many, many lines inside, but you could skip one of them. So Helium said, like any of the comics that worked at the club, um, would, would be able to skip that line. So oh, nice. I'd never watched the show, um, but I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so <clears throat> I went to the, I think it was at the convention center. I got to skip the long line, but then you go inside and it's like lines upon lines upon lines, you know, <laughs> and you like wait for a while. And then I went to a room with three producers that you can tell they're just like interns, yeah. you know, and they've seen yeah. like 500 people. Yeah. They're going to see another 500. There's a camera there. They go, all right, do your thing. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, all comedy, hop a dap a doo, you know, and they're just like, thank you very much for your time. And, but then I went out into the hallway and they interview you. And I guess I was like, weird. I could tell by the reaction from the camera person, they're like, this guy is weird. <laughs> comedy TV likes weird people, you know, like we need people we can laugh at. So, um, so I think I did well in like the, that, and then they, um, they called me afterwards and I had to do a phone interview mm-hmm. and then they emailed me like a questionnaire, um, with questions like, what challenges have you overcome to achieve your dreams? And I was like, uh, <laughs> none, no challenges, lack of talent, asthma, uh, you know like i just that uh, you know that whole the whole vibe of the show like the inspiration thing is is not most comedians are not that genuine and open and you know like we're uh, allergic to being genuine you know what i mean so i was like dream fuck you you know (laughs) Um, but and then so they did tons of vetting and like they talked to you a lot i think just to see what you're like because what you're like really matters as much as your acts i mean you probably have more screen time on the show not doing your act than doing your that's act very true i didn't even realize that but that's spot on yeah and then after all that rigmarole then i went to new york yeah for the actual first televised audition and mm-hmm. that was at the hammerstein ballroom which is big and i got there i don't know what time i got there at maybe like two and i didn't go on till maybe like 10 at night eight it was really late i'd been there like 10 hours the audience had been there i think five hours i was the second to last act of the night oh my gosh they told me they almost told me they're like we you might not get to go up the dancing sarah palins are going kind of long (laughs) the dancing sarah palins were right before me it was these old-timey like 1920s style dancing girls all dressed like sarah palin and then there was a bear a guy dressed as a bear and they shot him and I was going after that, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm dead. I can't that, compete with the dance of Sarah Palin's. Did you, but anyway, so about the AGT, so, I mean, the, 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 the audition's legendary because you, I mean, they, you were not set up for success. Like, these people had those boos no. in their holster. You could have came out with a Louis C.K. joke, and they would have still booed you right off the bat. I, where what was going through your, did you know ahead of time that the audience was like, did you know that you were just going into the lion's den or were you caught off guard by almost like the Springer like atmosphere where this audience was, you know, the audience was now part of the show and they felt encouraged and I will be part of the show. Or were you somewhat heads up getting ready 
you know, prepare yourself for this kind of rebuttal that you're legendary for. I knew it was going to be extreme because I was underneath the stage, the, the green room for all the contestants. I don't know if you called it a green room. It was this big mm-hmm. room where everybody was waiting. And it's funny because I got to see like everybody practicing their acts. So you see magicians like appearing and disappearing yeah. doves and the yeah. people were walking on their hands and contorting. And I was just <laughs> sitting silently like I got, I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk for 60 seconds. I guess. <clears throat> but we were underneath the stage or where yeah. the audience was. So you could hear the roar of the crowd. It sounded like the ocean. You could hear like, like 2000 yeah. people cheering or stamping yeah. their feet and stuff. So you could hear Jeez. the show going on. You could hear like, Oh, this is going to be intense. Yeah. Loud, it is a Coliseum. Loud people. It was like the Coliseum. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Yeah. It felt like a gladiator getting ready to go on stage. And yeah. I mean, in the audience's defense, I think they might have, they would have cheered if they had liked the jokes. I mean, I had a very negative opening to my act. I said, I think back then I opened my act, I said, are there any optimists in the audience? My <laughs> jokes are going to disappoint you the most, which is like an, it's some you know, self-deprecating humor. Yeah. These people are like, I've waited here for six hours, <laughs> I'm paid for parking. You're opening by telling me you're bad? Boo, they're mad they're like legitimately which totally makes sense i mean i don't you know use that opener anymore now i open the show i'm like i know what i'm doing i swear to god it's gonna be worth the babysitter i'm trying my hardest i promise you, you know? did, um did the, did the producers tell you to use that joke first or did someone else like another helium comic that was there with you for this did they tell you this or was this your own choice to go with that first joke that was my choice you okay. have to tell them what yeah. you're going to, you tell the producers what you're going to do for your mm-hmm. act. And so in my case, it's just, I tell them what jokes I'm going to do. So I told them what my set list was going to be. I typed it up yeah. and I sent it to them because they want to make sure you're not going to say anything like messed yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and so I just did that and they said, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, in uh, to their credit, the, the, the America's Got Talent producers were very hands off. They pretty okay. much let you do whatever you wanted to do. Yeah. Like I was allowed to wear what I wanted to wear, say what I wanted to say. You know, they're like, yeah, go ahead, dig your own grave. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, but they just have so many people on, they audition yeah. so many people and they just let you do your own thing. Mm-hmm. And I think they figure some of these are going to be good. And it, it seemed it all happened very naturally. I mean, yeah. So you didn't, didn't have any of that rebuttal prepared ahead of time, just in case, like just because you saw another comic go up no. again, apart. So that all you were all shooting from the hip as soon as that yeah. crowd started. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I understand, like you know, um, you, you have a back. I think you. I think I remember listening to an interview you had done saying, like, had I not been bullied as a kid, I probably wouldn't have gone into stand up. So yeah. did, 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 did you? Did this kind of like? kind of like uh strength and armor like you you, you know yeah 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 really you really you know sharpened the sword you know quote unquote through your childhood and now you're ready just to like fight back and hit the audience and had you had a childhood free of bullying do you think that your response would have been different had the crowd started to boo you i don't know i mean i've said before that i think yeah getting bullied made me able to do stand-up because I got made fun of mm-hmm. and you learn, I learned, I saw, you know, I saw how bad it could be. I was publicly embarrassed at school mm-hmm. and I kind of got used to it mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I saw, yeah. Oh, it's not the end of the world. Somebody makes fun of you. Yeah. 
you know, if a stranger makes fun of you, like, of course, that's demeaning and it doesn't mm -hmm. feel good. But at the same time, like bullies are a little bit different because it's almost like it's their job. That's the, what they do, yeah. you know, in the social order. I'm like, your job is to, my job is to be weird, dress strange. <laughs> and your job is to try to push me back in line. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I actually learned to not respect bullies because the first time I started getting bullied in, in junior high because I had sideburns. Yes. I, big yeah. side big yeah. long sideburns in like seventh grade nobody else could even grow them nobody <laughs> else was wearing sideburns yeah this was kind of around the time in 90210 but like okay. my sideburns were like big beef like, like yeah. elvis chopped you know yeah. like motorhead made no <laughs> sense and so they were like yo elvis and i was like yeah. oh elvis is the king of rock and roll thank you <laughs> no we mean it's an insult <laughs> ah shoot but yeah one day a bully pulled me aside and he goes hey look i like you yeah let me give you some advice all you gotta do is shave the sideburns off yeah we'll stop making fun of you <laughs> and i went you will and he yeah. Said, yeah and i immediately lost all respect for them <laughs> because i thought they legitimately disliked me but i was like you're so shallow i can get out of this yeah have you no integrity? You're supposed to hate me as a person. Yeah. But you just, I, I, and I, I lost a lot of respect for them. Well, that, that's very, that's very mature. I mean, and it, you know, we're, we're going to touch on your childhood, because you know, a little bit, but it's like your childhood was, you know, having, having realized that your book, this might hurt a bit is very autobiographical or memoirish. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not sure what the difference is. But with like the the, the, the peppering of fiction over top of it, so that you can mm -hmm. kind of get away with with it not being an autobiography. It's like it's like your childhood was not very great. It you know I doubt I doubt if I gave you a magic wand to relive your childhood again, you would take me up on it. You'd probably be like I'm okay. Let's just stay put here, kind of thing. <laughs> um, Nobody wants um, to relive their childhood, do they? I'm, I'm doing stuff, you know, you're always here like you're like high school heroes and that kind of thing. Like, you know, you hear those kind of people do it. I personally wouldn't do that. I had a very similar childhood in the bullying aspect, not so much in the, in the, the home life. But I liked high uh, school. High school things got good again. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. But like when it comes to bullying and you, and you and you realize a situation like that and you see like, did you did you mostly see like that the bullies were just insecure with themselves because Here's a guy who's getting facial hair before him. So like more, you know, more of a masculine kind of look. Then also like you're very intelligent. You skipped a grade. That's how you get the nickname Doogie. Mm -hmm. You know, like you think there was a lot of jealousy towards you. And this was a way for them to kind of, hey, they fell down here to you. And then they're going to like, I'm going to equal up and get one over. Did you ever look back and reflect on that a little bit that way? Zero jealousy. No way. <laughs> Zero jealousy. Nobody was like this guy. Well, the kid listening to Louis Armstrong CDs. <laughs> God, I wish I was. I wish I liked the Marx Brothers as much as he did. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, but I, I, I mean, like you mentioned the story. Like you look back at one of your childhood bullies, and he's like this construction worker who lost his job like a million times. Like, oh, and it yeah. brings you. It brings you great. Like, it brings you like almost like uh, validation, or I'm not sure. Not not vengeance. That's not the right word. But um, vengeance. Some kind of, <laughs> but like something where it's like just like just like oh okay. Like there's more like an empathy towards towards this individual now because it's like I, this explains a lot. Who knows what was going at home for this dude? If this is like his outcome is like. Do you ever reflect back and maybe like when you're talking to your own kid about bullying, kind of give him 
like some insight that you weren't privy into at that age from your own parents? You know, these days, everybody's anti-bullying. Well, not everybody. Republicans yeah. probably love it. They're like, yeah, more <laughs> bullying. Um, yeah, they, but I, they I think bullying is <laughs> important. Like I, I learned, uh, it was good that it happened to me. It taught me empathy. I think I'm a nicer person because I got bullied. Um, and I think there's always going to be bullies. Um, I think high school is a great time for bullies. Mm-hmm. And um and also like jocks Mm -hmm. jocks and bullies high school is great college is maybe still okay but then like once you get out into the real world these days the real world is made for nerds nerds rule yeah because nobody wants a cool guy yeah like a bully for a job they're like i want the nerd for the job i want a guy (laughs) who works hard yeah doesn't talk back <laughs> is intelligent is yeah. you know like all the qualities that make you nerdy mm-hmm. hardworking, obedient creative mm-hmm. um are, are the qualities you want in an employee for almost any job mm-hmm. and the qualities that make bullies like being violent uber yeah. confident Yes. Even like coolness is not yes. particularly useful in most jobs these days. Yeah. So I feel bad for bullies because it's like you, you get out of high school and you're kind of, you don't have any useful skills. Um, yeah. Very I feel true. like nerds are the new bullies. I feel like you couldn't make Revenge of the Nerds these days. You couldn't make that movie because people would be like, what? You know, uh, you have to flip it. You have to be like Revenge of the Job. So, so you, because I, I think, I, I, oh, you know, and I, and I, I have a quote here from you that I read. like, nobody liked me in school. I was picked on a lot. I try to use humor to get people from pushing me around, but it didn't work. And so I, I feel like it made like, them more mad. Yeah, like, I, I feel like I'm getting humor like a conflict. They just got mad. They're like, oh, Mr. Smart Guy, you got a smart <laughs> mouth. I heard that a lot. You got a smart yeah. mouth. Like, is that yeah, nice. good? Or that's bad. Ah, okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I, because I feel like your perspective now has changed from bullying. Because when I read this quote, and this quote had come out years ago, you know, prior to, I think it came out right around the time your album was dropping. I think it was an interview had done for your album, so it's prior to your book coming out or your your book coming out. But it's like I feel like your almost your perspective of bullying has changed because when I at least my interpretation of that quote was your childhood was miserable because bullies made it miserable. There was nothing fun about school. You couldn't be like, you wanted to be who you were, but other people just age you for it. But now there's more like an appreciation approach for those people who made your life miserable. So mm-hmm. did is, have you had some kind of like a metamorphosis since maybe this quote came out and, and uh, maybe, you know, just like with age or whatever, you kind of acknowledge- I still stand it. by that quote. That quote's true. Yeah. You know, like it was bad. But yeah. like a lot of times bad experiences, you come out of them a better person. You know, I came mm-hmm. out of getting bullied with the ability to not care as much about people's opinions or to learn yeah. that like you can be publicly embarrassed. Someone can hate you, but maybe don't pay attention to the, their opinion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if someone you have nothing in common with mm-hmm. doesn't like you, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily a bad thing. Like mm-hmm. my son and I started Rewatching the Star Wars prequels, episode one and episode two, right? Okay. And I remember when they came out, 
Yeah. I hated them. Yes. And when I they still, came out, I was like, how old were we? Like, oh, oh man, I was still in middle school, I guess, when it came oh, out. Oh, I'm older than you then. Yeah. So, but I'm I was 30, not a kid I'll be 37. anymore. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it was about that. Yeah. I was probably like in high school or something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I didn't like them. I thought they sucked. My son is six. He just watched episode one. He loved it. Mm-hmm. And I've read that George Lucas said that he made the prequels with kids in mind, with his grandkids in mind, right? Yeah. I hated the prequels. <laughs> I hated Jar Jar Binks, but the prequels should not be listening to me. The prequels were not made for me. The prequels were made for kids, and kids watch it. My son loves Jar Jar Binks, right? So if some like bully, some meathead yeah. makes yeah. fun of me, of course he doesn't like me. He, we have totally different things in common. So like being yeah. bullied taught me, you know, I shouldn't, you can't help but care what strangers think about you, but like you should try not to care what your stranger thinks about you. You should care what your wife thinks about you or your friend yeah. thinks about you or your mom thinks about yeah. you, people that know you and whose yeah. opinion you value. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I said, that's a very mature thing to say at our age. But how do you tell someone like your son when he comes home from school, like in, you know, first, second grade, and there is a kid bullying him who doesn't have, you know, 30 plus years of perspective to kind of reflect on? How do you kind of like let him know it's okay to be himself? Because I mean, I was bullying school for always being small and skinny. So, you know, and I used, to, I would say like the opposite of you is my humor got, got me out of it. But with you, it seemed like the humor, even though now, you know, it's like hilarious. I wonder if some of the people now who have heard your stuff have a different opinion, you know, or maybe, you know, they I think your humor is so smart like... that didn't get it then. But <laughs> uh, going back to the original question, what, how do you relate to somebody with the theme of relation, you know, when you use Star Wars analogy? Like, how do you tell like a kid who's eight years or will be eight or nine that, hey, this all evens out later in life with just a short blip on this earth? Yeah, I guess I'd just tell them that. I'd say <laughs> bullies have their place, you know? I mean, I think it makes sense that bullies make fun of us. I mean, now that, like, Twitter is, like, we live more of our lives online, I feel like now nerds, mm-hmm. I feel like we bully the bullies more than the bullies <laughs> bully us because we live now in just, like, <laughs> a, this mental space, this, you know, just online and stuff and, like, we're better writers. Yeah. We took typing classes. We could type faster, you know, like we, yeah. you know, so I feel like if the bullies weren't bullying us, I feel like, I feel like the nerds wouldn't bully as much. I feel like yeah. we're a little you know what more it feels like. yeah. chill and we're just more chill. I just, yeah. I'm like, why would I bully someone? I'm reading a book. You know? Yeah. Probably the most um, weird group right now is anonymous. And those people are just a bunch of nerds. Probably the yeah. most weird group on this planet right now. They can shut down countries if they wanted to. Well, that's great. That's great. But so, I guess I'll just tell my son. I'll be like, "Yeah, it's, it might happen. Yeah, you might get bullied, or you might become a bully." You know, like yeah. it's very appealing. I feel like everybody's done it a little bit. Like, yes, I've seen nerds around smaller, nerdier nerds. Yeah, and they bully, and you're like, "Oh, yeah." This rush, you're like, "Oh, I feel powerful now. Yeah. I understand why people do it." You know, when you're you have kind of childhood the way you you do you know th- this is what the book touches on and um is like it seems now again i don't know you well enough that we've never had a conversation beforehand this is what this is all about but the book makes it seem to me and again i understand like the book was mostly autobiographical fiction so correct me if i'm going down a path that's not correct um that your parents and home life not support you couldn't go to them 
and be like, school is very hard right now. I don't feel like I don't like, I don't know if you felt like you didn't want to go to school or whatever, but like, did you have that support system back home or was it just oh, yeah. a very lonely kind of childhood? I was lonely, but I was just like a lonely, that was just my temperament. I mean, my parents were, my parents were great. I mean, my parents were very supportive. They were always kind. Um, I told them I was getting bullied mm-hmm. and, but there's like not much you can, they could do like, what are they going to do? Like go to school with me, you know, like they, they <laughs> yeah. tried to, you know, if somebody hit me, they get in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I get slammed or something, you know, they you yeah. go to the principal's office, but like, um, I mean, no, my parents were very supportive and they were, um, they were great. I mean, okay. me not going to school wasn't really an option. I wasn't going to do that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You can't run from yourself. Yeah. I mean, I was getting bullied because I was a weirdo. And so I could have gone to another school and there just would have been other people there that would have bullied me too. Yeah. So you can't. Were you physically attacked as, like from bullying? Was it more like a pick on, like just making fun of your appearance? But were you actually yeah. physically I got physically attacked, but barely. I mean, not bad. Okay. You know, it was the suburbs. <laughs> Nobody knifed me. <laughs> Nothing too bad. So the, the 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 book is you know having now I you know I've, I'm trying I, as soon as I booked you and for the interview I've been trying to like that the, the book is amazing like I haven't finished it yet but I'm going to it's you. very it's very it's very addicting it's very addicting very relatable um you know especially when it comes to the topic of grief and grieving and the fact that you did mm-hmm. lose an older sister to cancer um, how old were you I know the book. How old were you when your sister died of cancer? How old was she in real life? I was 10. She was 12. 12. And what was your relationship like with your sister? What was your, like, was she, were you guys really close? Or what was that relationship like? We weren't that close as far as I remember. I, when yeah. we, we weren't that close as far as I remember. Is it just because I mean, we close because she was my sister? Yeah. yeah, I think it was just, it was just like a big kid, little kid thing, like, you know, you don't want to hang out with your little brother. Yeah. Um, so we actually weren't very close. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. I wanted to yeah. like spend a little more time with her and try to remember what, what, you know, try to get some memories on paper before I forgot them all. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that's really, I like that. I like that attitude. And I like the fact that yeah, there. You know, it's the the book is very like exploring exploring this topic that you haven't really touched on in a lot of years and really reflecting on it. Was there anything in your life that you had an outlet for at that time to talk about grief? Yeah, my parents were really supportive. I mean, that's one thing. Um, I feel like I had a yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't too. I mean, you know, somebody dies of cancer. That's sad. But at the same time, it's natural. It's like people die. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. And my parents were supportive and kind and stuff. It's kind of like natural as opposed to like, I think it would be way worse if like, if one of your parents doesn't like you mm-hmm. and treats you crappy, like that's mm-hmm. unnatural, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that would be a much worse situation than just mm-hmm. somebody dies. Now it's unnatural for a young person to die, but it happens. Yeah. And um yeah, she got sick twice. She was sick once when she was little, mm-hmm. and I was really little. I think maybe she was five and I was three. Mm-hmm. 
And then she got better and she was better for seven years. And then she got it again. What kind of cancer did she have? Leukemia. Leukemia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So, but you're, you're watching your older sister. And I mean, when you're, you have leukemia, especially leukemia, she's in a lot of pain. And like, do you understand, like, what did you understand at 10 years old? I mean, the book, the, the way, when you wrote this book in 2019, it makes me think that you didn't understand it and that you used this book as an outlet to understand what exactly unfolded in your life during this period of time. I know the book is written in two days, but I understand the period of time is much larger. Yeah. Like, if you, like, it seems like you understood it a couple of years ago, but you didn't really understand it when you were 10. Um, is that true or not true? I understood it. I wrote the book to help me uh, process my my feelings about it because I think I had uh, maybe repressed is too strong a word, but it's just mm -hmm. not pleasant stuff to think about. Yeah. And I wrote the book as a way for me to move on, to yeah. put it to rest, to put the past behind yeah. me. But you, you, you mentioned in, in the book, it seems like the book gave me like really big, like stand by me vibes, like that kind of like kind of oh, <laughs> I like stand by me. Yeah. Um, um, but like kind of like that older sibling who's kind of like, you know, it sounds like the relationship was not as close. But again, you're 10 years and 12, you know, give me give me two two siblings, opposite genders that are close at that age. But yeah, um, uh, did you did you see that when when this whole thing happened in the book, it seems like there was a wedge driven between your parents and you, but now you're saying your parents were fully supportive and were present with you during this thing. So they were was supportive. That, I don't know if there was a, it was sort of a, there was sort of a wedge, um, but it like they were, it wasn't like their fault or anything and they were supportive. Yeah. Um, but I think when something like that happens, a lot of times it kind of, I don't know, you go into your own world a little bit or it changes things. Yeah. But it's not like they were, they weren't bad parents. They didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're never in that situation before. It's like they're navigating new territory, but no one wants to navigate ever and you don't prepare to navigate. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, like when I, when I know parents, that lose small children like they you know i see them i don't know where your parent but they either like obsess over the, the the dead child and and they kind of forget about the other siblings or they're most or they obsess over the other siblings like like almost put them in bubble wrap so that nothing like that happens again kind of thing did you did you feel like any one of like either a or b scenario there feel forgotten or just feel like over like helicopter parents then no no okay. neither one yeah, it wasn't like Stand By Me where they left the kids, the dead kids' room exactly yeah. the way it was. I mean, they moved on. We moved. Yeah, like we, we to the country right after it happened. Yeah, we could just get out of this house. Yeah. Um, Looking back, do you think that was the, the right move? Was to kind of like, okay, our life has changed. Let's physically change the environment around us then? Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, having a kid now, I know. If my kid dies, I'll be like, I am moving to Japan. I'm yeah. Japanese now. I'm embracing <laughs> the way of the Bushido. Yeah. It's all changing. Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah, I mean, 
if you can do that, I think it's actually probably helpful. Because my, my interpretation of what you just said in the last 10 minutes now is like, this book had to happen because it's almost like your parents were like, okay, we're going to almost like eliminate everything about the sister by moving. And then we're just going to move on with our lives. Like, was there any discussion? Was there any memorializing like on her birthday every year? Was or just almost pretend like when you grew up that she never even existed after she had died? Oh, no, it's not. It wasn't that dramatic. I mean, okay. no, no. I mean, they still talked about her and stuff. I mean, okay. I mean, the book is mostly true, but it's mm -hmm. also dramatized yeah. somewhat to make it more booky. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, they still talk about her. They have pictures of her. Okay. If I go to my parents' house right now, they have pictures of Melanie. Yeah. You can ask about her. You can talk about her. Okay. Um, do they do anything for leukemia? Like, do you guys run, like, some kind of, you know, like a leukemia fundraiser in her, her memory or anything like that, just as a way to keep the memory of Melanie alive? I do a comedy show every year. We do a big in-memoriam screen point. All the lights go down. We give up, do pictures of all the dead kids. And then I go on. I do stand-up in the round. No, I'm yeah. kidding. That's like the dog thing. Oh, okay. uh, that'd be the worst to be the sad no <laughs> I, gotta believe you. I, was, I, was like, I was like do you <laughs> like, here's a bunch of dead kids on? and now the jokes Boom. <laughs> uh no i don't think we i don't do anything okay because i think I, everybody's I, already working hard to try to cure cancer yeah i think everybody's already on the same page the, they're like the cancer book? bad <laughs> So did you feel that you helped? Do you feel that the book did help heal you? Yeah, I got it out of my system and I had no, you know, that was like technically a YA novel. Yeah. I didn't really mean it uh, to be that, but like they asked me, the publisher was like, all right, what's next? What's the next book? And I was like, there's no next thing. Like, did nothing. <laughs> That's it. I did it. I only have one dead sibling, so I don't need another, another book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I had no interest in writing and I only wanted to write that book because I wanted to explore that. Um, you know, and it was just nice also to like, uh, yeah, go back to my high school times and kind of remember yeah. my old friends and remember my sister in that time in the country and, and process those emotions and stuff. But then after I wrote that, now I'm like, I don't, I don't have another <laughs> book in that genre. Yeah. But the, the, you, you mentioned that when you were, the book had, you know, the, uh, the book was, I want to say Simon Schuster was going to send the publishing and, and you called your parents and like, hey, I want you to read this because it's coming out. Yeah. And your dad goes, what are you doing? This is not something that goes on here. And yeah, um, you got mad. So, but so it, 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 it was more along the lines of like, hey, what's, is, what happens in the family stays in the family kind of kind of deal. Should yeah. be but did he, do you, I, I, there's a, I know what happens later. I know, I know how you got him to eventually get on board. But I'm going to say like in that first initial, when he says no, was that him? Why do, why do you think like he couldn't recognize that this book was about you just trying to process this? 20 some years later versus like, Hey, this is a big money grab. Like, that's not what, like you, like, why, what was the point? Do you think it resonated with him? Like, this is just, this is for me and to help others that went through a situation like this versus this is not a cash grab kind of situation. Well, he wouldn't know that, that it was for me to process it or that I was writing it to try to help other people because I would never say that, 
you know, like I'm not a very emotional person and that's Mm -hmm. why I wrote the book because Mm -hmm. I could be emotional in the book, but I wouldn't Mm -hmm. ever be emotional in real life like that. So I would never, Mm -hmm. I would never tell him that's the point of the book because I'm like, I just wouldn't say that. Yeah. So how would he know? Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like saying that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but, um, so yeah, he was upset and which totally made sense to me. And then, um, but he hadn't even read the book. Yes. He said he didn't want to read the book. And I said, well... I don't think that was, though. I can, I can understand maybe not you not wanting other people to read the book. Why don't you think he wanted to... What do you think was the root cause of him not wanting to read your book, his son's book, about... that takes place with his daughter. It's kind of like the starting out initial, you know, trajectory. Because I think he's been... He, I think he's been through all that shit. I think for me... Mm-hmm. Obviously, for me, my sister's death was was way easier than it was for my parents mm-hmm. you know like i'm not the one that needs that that went through a really hard time they went through a hard time yeah but you, you know like yeah. you love your sister or your brother or whatever but yeah you don't love them anywhere near as much as a parent loves their child you know yeah. i mean i make it like i'm the main character of the book but really i'm not the main character of that story my parents are the main character of the story they went yeah it was yeah. it's way harder for a parent yeah and so my dad was probably like why the hell would I want to read, no, go yeah. through that? You know, like, oh, I wrote the story about that time you um, got mauled by a dog and you, yeah. your pants fell down and everybody yeah. laughed at your little dick and <laughs> I wrote a book about you want to read it, but no, thanks. You know, like, um, so of course he didn't want to, you, you know what I mean? And so, but then I, I was like, well, can I just read some of it to you over the mm-hmm. phone? And oh, yeah fine and so i read him i just started at the beginning and the beginning of the book is me and my dad hanging out Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm. uh in the hangar my dad used to fly airplanes Mm -hmm. and um and it's just him and i hanging out spending time together and then he was okay with it and he's like all right that's okay you know, actually, I have an idea for a, yeah. uh, a war novel set in World War II. So an American pilot and a Japanese pilot both get shot down and they end up on the same island. Do you think you could write that? And I said, that's Hell in the Pacific. That's the Lee Marvin Tashira Mifune movie, Hell in the Pacific, later remade into Enemy Mine. You didn't come up with that story. Daddy. He's like, no, no, this is different. I think it's different because it's a book and you could write it. I would say it to you and you would write it down. I, well, you know, I, I thought about I thought about that story that you just described, and I my initial thought was it's sweet because you do start out with this memory where you're spending time with your dad. And yeah, I thought yeah, and it's like oh, and it's just like hey, I, you know, I long for these times together. You know, and that was all happening prior to my sister dying. But then I hear another interview talked about your father had a stroke and was disabled. Now is yeah is, is that a was that the cause of I, then I was thinking like. Oh, is that why these? It's like, is there more sad now? Because it wasn't the fact that the sister died. Um, it wasn't the fact that the sister died. It was the fact that his father this was physically unable to fly planes now. That was in the book, too. That was part of it, too. Yeah, okay. the book was kind of also about that. Yeah, I miss flying with my dad. And yeah, he misses yeah. flying, too. Yeah. So that was, there was some of that in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it, it sounds, I mean, are both your parents still around today? Mm-hmm. They're still okay. kicking. Yeah, that's good. My that's dad good. will never die. He's <laughs> had like 12 strokes. 
Jeez. He's in a massive motorcycle accident. Oh um, he eats nothing but hot dogs and ice cream, oh and he will live forever. <laughs> he is indestructible. Yeah. All his friends are dead. He's still alive. Half of them have died in plane crashes from flying ultralights. I mean, if he had kept flying, he might be dead by now. I oh don't know. Oh, my gosh. Don't I'm already in fear of flying. Please don't tell me. It's So it seems like, and you might have touched on a little bit, but it seems like, when you do comedy, your comedy is, you don't talk about yourself doing comedy. That's, it seems like it's easier for you to write out in solitude in, in the selling of a book. Why don't you bring more? Now, I haven't, I haven't seen you perform in, in, in a number of years, but so you may be doing it, but um, why don't you bring more of this vulnerable self to the stage? You do, I would say like, from what I remember about your album, and I do, I was trying to listen to your album again. I have it on my iPod, my iPod wasn't working. I was like, oh crap. But um, um, uh, I remember like your, your joke about the other Bethlehem. You do mm -hmm. mention like this, like there, there's hints of bullying that go on in the, in the, in the, in that joke. But I would say your comedy is mostly Doogie Horner observations about interactions that he's involved with, but you don't really touch on the personal side of yourself. So why, why don't you bring that more to the stage, this more vulnerable side with the sadness and the tragedy? Yeah, I mean, most of my comedy is more just observational. Like <clears throat> right now I have a joke about how I, I drive the speed limit. People don't like that. I have a joke yeah. about milk. Yeah. I'm really excited. Every great comedian has to have a milk joke. <laughs> I thought they'd all been written already. I was like, ooh, I got a milk joke. <laughs> Um, what else? I got a, a got a joke about bed bugs. Yeah, it's just like random yeah. observation stuff. I don't I don't do too many personal jokes, and it's just because yeah, I'm not. I don't like talking about myself on stage, or <clears throat> that's also just not the kind of comedy I'm. I'm interested. In. I just don't like okay. talking about myself, and yeah, talking about like sad shit. I mean, a lot of comedians do that really well. Gary Goldman's. Mm -hmm. you know recent special was great yeah uh but that yeah that's just not my personality and it's also not why i do comedy i do comedy to try to forget about that stuff okay you know comedy is like my break from reality and so that's why i like to focus on yeah things that don't matter or just okay. little observations talking about cheese or yeah you know whatever i mean yeah. um or these days I talk a lot about my family. I think as soon as you have kids, you just become obsessed okay. with your children oh, so you're, you're, or you're, the pants off everyone else, you're, you know, you're, talking yeah, about your not, kid. Not your folks or anything like that or your sister or anything. No, like no, I just, okay. yeah, I just have like a half hour of jokes about my son just because, nice. you know, nice. Now, your parent, um, proud parent, you know. So tell me how then you approach, tell me the two different, the, the two ways that you approach your a joke and how you approach this book you just wrote. Um, when you when you when you look at a joke and you're approaching a joke for the first time, like th th where does that come from? Do you sit down and kind of review your day, or do you take a note in your phone, then you look at that note and see, and then relay that to like and show the converse side of that when you're writing a book with talking about deep subject matter like bullying and friendship i mean in the book i don't want to spoil anything but there's things going on with your friends that aren't the greatest in the world and your relationship with your parents that's not great and well the book doesn't seem as great and your sister dying like tell me the two approaches and how you took different paths to 
kind of complete projects, the book being a project and just a single joke being a project? They're both, if you're doing them right, both of them are, the, the, my favorite way to do both of them is as a habit. Okay. When I write a book, I write every day, I do a thousand words, and I keep writing until the first draft is done. And I try to be as open as possible with the first draft, just put everything down. I try not to edit. I try not to have the editor, my editor hat on. I just put down what I want to put down. This is your big chance. Say whatever you want to say. And I keep moving forward. I never move back Mm -hmm. or very little. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll start the day by editing the previous day's work a little Mm -hmm. bit. Like I'll reread the previous day's work and just like maybe edit it a little bit or chop things up or move things. But I try not to change it too much. And then I'll do that day's writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I finish the first drafts, I put it in a drawer Mm -hmm. for like a month or two, then I bring it back out, read it, maybe take some notes in the margin or whatever, but try to just read it. Mm-hmm. And then I do the second draft and I don't let anybody see the first draft. And then the second draft, after I, I write it the same way as I wrote the first draft. And then at the end of the second draft, again, I put it away for a month or two. Then I reread it. Mm-hmm write down my thoughts on it. And then I let people read it, but only certain people you want to make sure that the people you have read it are people that you think are going to be good readers that like. um, Give you good feedback. Yeah. Not, not people that'll just tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. I meant like, I should say like applicable feedback. Yeah. 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 yeah, You meant the right thing, but yeah, I just, you want somebody that's going to like, that would read this book. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like how you don't want to show episode one to a 40 year old. You want to show episode <laughs> one to a 10 year old. Yeah. Um, so who are these so, people? Who are, who is your litmus test for, for the second draft? Uh, my readers right now are my friend, Jason, mm-hmm. who I used to work with at Quirk. He's an editor and he's an author. Um, my wife. And then I think that's it. They're my two main readers. Mm-hmm. And then depending on the book, I'll maybe show it to some other people that I think like, oh, they might read this kind of book or, okay. or whatever. They're my two, but they're my two main readers. Oh, and then my editor and my age, my agent, yeah, my agent. Um, and so I guess those are my three main readers. Um, and then, yeah, the, this might hurt a bit changed mm-hmm. a lot. The first draft, was way more violent. Um, it was way more about the bullies. It was way weirder and more experimental. It had all these dream sequences with Jason Statham in them. <laughs> there was a scene where we were crabbing, crabbing together. Okay. We were under a bridge on a pylon and we were catching yeah. crabs with chicken necks tied to uh, shoelaces. We'd taken our shoelaces <laughs> off and just it was just like a lot of crazy shit you know yeah and um so and it was originally called horse dogs it was called horse dogs forever and the first thing um simon and schuster said when they bought it was like well we're we're definitely changing that name (laughs) oh come on horse dogs Uh, i'm still mad about that i should have kept the horse dogs but i um, I do like this title though this might hurt a bit it's a good title yeah 
I wrote, they're like, well, we can't have it be that. And so I was like, well, if it's not that, I kind of don't know. So I wrote a list of over a hundred titles and I said, pick one. I don't care. Cry hard was one <laughs> that I thought was ingenious. Resonate for your whole life, man. Yeah, dude. With you and action heroes, you love Bruce Willis, you love Jason Statham. You're a big action guy. You're big action guy, yeah. Is that who yeah. you wish you were being? Like this whole this whole doogie that was wearing the weird clothes and being bullied. Did you always have dreams to be the Jason Statham, Bruce Willis of your life? No, yeah, I wasn't. Okay. I wasn't into action movies at that age. At that age, I was into, <laughs> I was into like jazz. Okay. The Marx Brothers, like old comedy. Yes. Jazz, just the dorkiest Bob shit. Hope, yeah. yeah. Yeah, loved Bob Hope, Son of Pale Face, Danny Kay, yeah. just the worst, nerdiest, dorkiest legend, Van Dyke fan, you know. Legend. Legend. No, they're legends, but you know, yeah. it's not cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's how I write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're writing a book, you have to, it's almost like the opposite of comedy, where you have to be very genuine and be very open and like yeah. pretends you're this person. What would this person do? And you have to think about structure and mm-hmm. at a certain point you do have to think about structure and theme, unfortunately, and uh, language. Yeah. And um, when I read a joke, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different. Like I just kind of always try to think, oh, is that funny? Is that funny? And if I think of something funny, I go, yeah. all right, remember that. That's funny. And then I'll either write it down in my notebook or I'll type it in my phone or I'll do a audio recording in my phone or I'll type yeah. it on my computer. Yeah. Um, and then I just let it sit there Yeah. and I'll keep thinking about it. And then maybe I'll go in and write some more. I'll type some more. And then I feel like generally the good ideas stick around or kind of float to the top. So if an mm-hmm. idea sticks around long enough, then I go, okay, how can I make this better? And I just try to think about it or I'll write or I'll type or I'll think and I'll say it. And then I have a friend that I run jokes past. We do it every other week. Who's this? Who uh, Joe, Joe Zimmerman. Joe Zimmerman. Okay. He and I do it. I've, I've done this with other people and it's, it's hard. You got to, again, like with the writing, you have to find the right person, someone that's yeah. on your wavelength and you can feel safe with not that you feel safe with, but that like, is going to give you useful feedback. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's really useful for getting premises off the ground because mm-hmm. once you write something as a joke, you can slip that into your acts in between other jokes that you know work. Yeah. And even if the joke doesn't work, mm-hmm. the audience is just like, Oh, okay. That joke didn't work. But there's sometimes we have a premise and it's not written as a joke yet. And you're like, is this premise even funny? And so doing it, writing with a friend is really useful way to get premises off the ground because you can't slip a premise in the middle of your act. You can't tell a bunch of jokes and then go all of a sudden, hey, box springs are weird, right? Yeah. It's like a hard mattress (laughs) under the soft mattress. (laughs) And like our parents all had them, but we don't have them. We stopped and nothing bad (laughs) happened. And it was like, we didn't. So we didn't need the hard mattress the whole time. Like it's hard to slip that in because it's got just a totally different tone and rhythm. You know, yeah. Is that anything? Can I? Um, so I use that biweekly writing session 
as a good way also to test stuff out to see if that yeah. is even a good premise. I like it. Now you're it's it's funny because you're this brilliant author, but I wouldn't classify you as a storytelling comic. I'm not a storytelling comic. No. Yeah, you're like you're more observational, and it's and it's it, you know you describe when you first started out, you were like a one liner guy, and then that yeah. kind of whole thing evolved. And you mentioned one time you were like, "I'm too alt for the main clubs, but I'm not alt enough for the all clubs." And then you go on to win Philly's Funniest, which is a which is. I want to ask you about this specifically because Philly is funniest, although I, I always admire people that win him because they have to be the funniest person. There's a huge bunch of talent. There's also a lot of popularity involved. So how do you, like, how did you feel being this person who wouldn't consider yourself popular in school, winning a hybrid popularity talent contest? And then how did you win it being the kind of like this demographic of comic that didn't really fit in anywhere? Kind of give me that whole experience that you had winning that contest. I think I won it because it, yeah, I just did an act and my act at that point actually was a little bit more personal. Okay. I had a joke where I was on last comic standing and on last comic standing, they said, uh, we don't like this weird character you're pretending to be. And I wasn't <laughs> pretending to be a weird character. I was just yeah. being myself. And they're like, this has to be a, no real person. Nobody would act like this, you know? <laughs> And so I told a joke about that. And then I think I told a joke maybe about my eyebrows or something like that. Or, um, yeah. you know, like, and then I had, I forget what the other ones were, but it was a, my set was like a little bit more personal. Yeah. And so um, I did fit in pretty well at Helium. Like I really, Helium Comedy Club is a really great place to start yeah. because I was considered alternative. I was considered weird compared to the other comedians but the audience was um okay with it mm -hmm. or like they thought it was weird but it was just the right amount of push pushback yeah. that like i kind of liked it you know what i mean yeah um but i was never alternative in the sense at that time there was a lot of anti-comedy going around also like what comedians i guess like what is anti-comedy i hear this but i really don't know what that means like i'm bad you're intentionally trying to be not funny oh okay Oh, kind so, of the Andy Kindler kind of way of doing comedy. Yeah, although I don't know if he, he's more like, he's his whole other thing. He's, yeah. I mean, that is anti-comedy, but like, <sighs> I feel like Andy Kindler as a genre is Andy Kindler. Andy Kindler, yeah. it's like, tell a joke. Oh. Like 30 second joke. Then yeah. that you know is not good, that you know is bad. And then spend three minutes talking yeah. about why that joke was bad. Then spend another minute talking about how the audience doesn't like you. Yeah. Then tell another bad joke that you totally don't believe in you don't stand behind at all yeah and dissect that yeah i um, i know okay anti-comedy and i can't that his name is his name is right here and then, but I oh, that andy, kaufman. andy kaufman yeah i never got yeah. him i never was a fan but i guess he would be anti-comedy right yeah or okay steve martin his act was sort of anti-comedy but it was okay above that because he was he had this whole level of showmanship also. Yeah. It was like anti-comedy comedy though. Yeah. It was comedy. But at that time, there was a lot of like hipster comedy, um, which I think is still out there a little bit, although now it's morphed and become more absurd and um <laughs> I don't know. But anyways, yeah. But 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 my comedy is like pretty basically mainstream, especially mm -hmm. now. I feel like 
I haven't gotten more mainstream, but people's taste has gotten more alternative. So now, <laughs> now I seem like even more mainstream. Yeah. Um, like my act is basically clean and I'm just talking about like this, you know, the speed limits and bagels milk. and milk and whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, ice cream, whatever, just, um, but it's yeah. still like, I think a little absurd and, uh, um, I, I like weird comedy. I, I think your comedy is just brilliant. And I think, yeah, you're right. I think like, you know, if you had to categorize comedy, you would throw yourself into the category with Jerry Seinfeld. But I wouldn't say anyone could do the comedy you can do. There's a certain, the way you deliver the joke, the way it's told. I mean, you know, I, the, the one I, I didn't have it on video, so I didn't want to use it. But the one I really love is the dollar pizza joke that you did on your album. That one is my oh, favorite. Yeah. Just you know, you're talking, you know, just the fact that like dollar pizza is so out there. If everyone has seen dollar pizza, but you're able to connect the dots to be like, hey, like oh, you know, like you got to try this, like things that are just unattainable to you, and it's just really funny. I know other comic I know has your style comedy, even though I would wedge it in with like that Seinfeld observational you made me. Um, when you when you're writing jokes like these, and you're writing jokes like the cheese joke. And the safari joke. I have a friend who does not like cheese. And when people find out he doesn't like cheese, they get furious. <laughs> they get so angry. They act like their cheese. <laughs> but it's interesting because they don't get angry at first. At first, they feel sorry for him because they think, oh my god, this poor guy thinks he doesn't like cheese. <laughs> Must have been in a car accident or something. I gotta help him out. <laughs> so it happens the same way. Every single time, the first thing they do is they start listing different cheeses. <laughs> they go, what about cheddar cheese? Have you tried cheddar cheese? What about Gouda? Oh, what about Swiss cheese? It's like when you tell people you don't like the Beatles, so they start angrily running through the discography. <laughs> What about the White Album? What about Abbey Road? They'll go on as long as they have to. And so finally they're like, oh, you never listened to the unreleased BBC bootleg sessions? The Beatles cut in 62? Well, I guess you never really listened to the Beatles then, did you? What about Manchego? What about Pecorino? What about... Goat cheese, and he says, those are all types of cheese, a thing I do not like. <laughs> and they say, okay, that's fine, that is fair enough. It's your opinion, so it is. It's okay. Do you like mozzarella sticks? Trying to trick him like a detective questioning a crafty Where were you last night? I was at home. Okay, where were you last night? I was murdering somebody. Aha! <laughs> what about grilled cheese? What about chicken cordon bleu? What about fondue? And he says, those all have cheese in them and I don't like cheese, so I don't like those things. And then they say, but you like pizza. They don't even ask, they're just confused. They're like, I like pizza and pizza has cheese on it, so you like cheese. And then he says, I don't like pizza. Oh. 
that's when they finally realize, this son of a bitch doesn't like cheese! And the engagement's off, he has to leave town, jump out of a hotel window with a suitcase full of soy milk or whatever the fuck. What is it? I, I know where the big punch is in each of those jokes, but is that what you first wrote down or did you kind of get, did you kind of organ trail your way there eventually from like a funny premise? How do you, how your jokes start out initially on paper? I must always start out with the premise. Okay. For me, the cheese joke, the premise was when you tell people you don't like cheese, they think you don't know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. You're wrong. How would you know what you like is yeah. basically what they're saying. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, they're just like, this guy just hasn't had the right cheese. He's just been eating American cheese his whole life. <laughs> and then they're like, oh my, I'm going to save this guy. I'm going to change his life by introducing him to yeah. Manchego. Yeah. And he's like, no, I know about Manchego. It's a cheese. Yeah. A thing I don't like. <laughs> like no, 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 no. You just yeah. never had mozzarella. I've had yeah. mozzarella. You know, and then they go, what about pizza? <laughs> pizza has cheese on it. Yeah. And you like pizza. So you do like cheese. And then he yeah. says, I don't like pizza. And then they go, oh, I see. You're an asshole. Then they're <laughs> mad at you. <laughs> like this guy knows. I thought this guy didn't know what he was talking about. He knows. He knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> he has chosen this path for himself. He's a piece of shit is what he is. He's a, he's a bigot. <laughs> Lactose intolerant. <laughs> I was even saying like the safari is even better joke because the punchline is so great in that where you're make it's the long it's it's one of those things where like the setup is so long but the payoff is so worth it like I almost wouldn't even recommend that style of joke to somebody unless they're at the level of intelligence and, and, and humor that you're at because you do this whole set about safari and here you just kind of like run from one rooftop to the other and get to Home Depot and the audience makes the leap with you. And it's so unlike, I mean, it's an analogy, but it's like two most separate things in the world, but just makes sense. Did you think of that, that analogy when you first started getting the seat of that, or did you just work and work and work and work and then bam, that just connects one time at an open mic somewhere? It just happened. I was, I was reading about, I think I was reading about safaris and about how animals behave on safari and yeah. how, yeah, they just, they see you like you're on the Savannah. So they see you, they have better eyes than we do. They see you coming yeah. and they're like, I'll just stay far away. Yeah. However close you get, I'll just keep going yeah. this way. Yeah. And I was at home Depot and I yeah. realized, Oh, these the people that work there do the same thing. Yeah. They see you in their peripheral vision and the, the aisles are so long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They can just keep moseying. And it's like, you got to chase these people yeah. to catch them. Yeah. Um, it, it's excellent because everyone's had that experience. It's not like just the Home Depot near where you live. You know, that has it. Everyone was on board. That's the punch is so big. So how, when you, if you can remember that far back to when that joke started to kind of take shape and form, did you know that you wanted to, so you read the article first and then did you, did you read the article and then want to write a joke about it? Or did you read the article and just kind of sat in the back of your head until you went to Home Depot? Then you were like, ah, joke. Is that kind of what yeah. happened? Yeah. Okay. The, the safari thing just stuck in the back of my head. I just remembered it because I thought, 
Oh, that's interesting. And also because I remembered from our days of cow painting that the cows would do the same yeah. thing. Okay. And oh, they would see, the cows would see you. <clears throat> they never yeah. ran away from us, but we never got any closer to them. And I was like, <laughs> how are they doing this? Like, oh, they just go the same speed you go in the opposite yeah. direction. Yeah. And so when I read about that, the animals on the savannah, I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's the same as cows. And yeah. so it was just something I remembered because I thought it was interesting. And then I went, you know, I've been to Home Depot a lot and I always yeah. found it so frustrating. Yeah. And so sometimes there's certain subjects that you just think are interesting. You're like, I want to yeah. write about Home Depot or I want to write yeah. about box springs. Like I have a joke yeah. I've been wanting to write yeah. for years about abstract art, about how yeah. when people look at it, their huge criticism is my kid could do that. Yeah, okay. but you're insulting your kid <laughs> like you're not just making fun of picasso you're also yeah. slamming your five-year-old and is that really necessary couldn't you just say i don't like it yeah. you have to also be like i don't like it and my kid also stinks at <laughs> art they're worse they this is bad and they could do it and they're horrible so you know so <laughs> i've been like so but Jeez, that's I've, brilliant i've told it on stage and it's just always like done like okay like there's certain yeah. premises there's subjects you want to write about that i've tried over the years and they always just do like okay and so i put them back into my notebook yeah. but then someday you hear some other thing like that fact about animals on safari how they yeah. evade, how they evade you and then you realize oh i could put i could use that yeah so it's great like i mean every comedian you know you write 10 jokes and only one of them and yeah. being good but those other nine you can remember them or keep them in your notebook and then someday you hear some other thing or you realize oh that's how i can improve it or that's how i can make it better yeah yeah and i like i like that even though so i guess you know even when you said like hey when you're writing when you're writing a book you, you never go back always go forward but that's something really different comedy like Sometimes I'll go back, you know, if it, if it makes sense. In yeah, I'll go back all the time. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, if you were, I mean, a lot about comedy is just like, yeah. to justify a joke, the only justification you need is, well, I'm interested in it. Yeah. And so if you cared enough to write it down or think about it in the first place, you were interested in it. Now, it might not be relatable to anybody. It might not be strong. But I think just the fact that you were interested in it means that, it's worth keeping keeping around to think yeah. of, to, to think of and just I mean a lot of times how you make jokes is just by making connections. This is like that. You combine yeah. these two different things. Yeah. And so the more kind of premises you have floating around in your mind, the more likely you are to make an unexpected connection. I like that. I like that. So you're constantly as you kind of exist in life and, and live your life kind of like what Jerry Seinfeld one time said in an interview. He's like, I'm never really present. I'm always thinking of jokes. Would you relate to that? Like, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm at the store with groceries or working on my new novel or playing ball with my kid, I'm always, that premise is always just hanging off my head kind of thing. You yeah, un unfortunately. I mean, I used to like that. And then, because um, it gives you something to do. Because most of the time... Yeah you're doing something and it's not that hard. You could be yeah. doing something else. And so I always liked that with comedy, I could have another thing going on where I was thinking about jokes. Although 
a couple of years ago, I finally started to get tired of it. I was like, okay, this is enough. And so when the pandemic hit, yeah, it was actually nice. That's why I said at the beginning of the, it was a nice break. Cause I was like, Oh, I can't do comedy. Yeah. So I don't, there's no point. I, I have no interest in writing jokes if I'm not going to be performing. I only write when I perform because yeah. otherwise it's annoying. You write a great bit. Yeah. But you don't know if it's a great bit or not because you can't try yeah. it out. So it's yeah. like, what's the and point of this? Because he's want to tell it. And <laughs> just sitting on this thing. Yeah. You know, so when the pandemic hit, I stopped writing. So I didn't write for a year and a half. Yeah. It was actually a nice break because it did free my mind up to to think about other things and nice i found that refreshing good i'm glad i'm, I'm glad you had a good pandemic you know good. oh it's great i loved it i hope it keeps going i hope we get another <laughs> bigger one um, um but when you when so going back to that safari joke and when you did did it work right away when you made that connection home depot or did you have to really tinker with it and if so how did you tinker with it so that the whole audience understood hey this minute setup about safari makes sense for this interaction that we all go through at home depot instant connection or did you really work hard on that that joke that joke worked right away there's some yeah. jokes that we when i write them they work most of my jokes either like i write them and they work yeah, yeah. or i write them and they don't work because i tend to write them pretty pretty carefully pretty tightly i'm not a super loose riffy kind of comic um but there are some jokes that, I mean, a lot of times what will happen is I'll write it and it doesn't, it maybe doesn't work at the beginning because I've got too many words in it. Um, and the timing is off. Yeah. I think my biggest weakness is rhythm and, okay. and, and kind of having a, 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 a lot of times my jokes ends the wrong way with like the wrong kind of rhythm where the audience goes, Oh, is it over? No. Oh, okay. So now it's the next. Okay. Really? Yeah, it's we funny. Laugh? I was gonna say. I'm oh, sorry. I was gonna say it's funny you say that because I think your rhythm, at least from the jokes I've heard, are really on point. You know, I think about all your jokes are kind of like like a chainsaw. Like you start out real docile, and then you get more ramped up, and you even kind of did it now when you're doing the cheese joke. You kind of get this voice, and you almost turn like into this character. You know, you're your pitch gets higher you get more animated like chugging, like chugging along so i feel like your rhythm is very good it's almost sing-songy kind of how your your delivery kind of goes as the joke progresses it's very very you know docile and static and then it's like then and we can see you coming like more at like when you're like the cheese joke's a great example your joke about the um police sketch artist joke is a great example where you're just like your tone is just ding, 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 gets more elevated. And then like it reset. We know you're the next joke because then you reset back down to this, this, you know, kind of how you are right now talking to you kind of person. Is that deliberate or is that just how you are? If, you know, you're talking to your wife and you see something absurd, you just want to go better. That's about. just how I am. I just get uh, worked up. I just start <laughs> out slow and then I get more worked up. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, like, that's like a crescendo. I yes. feel like people that have good rhythm, look at Nate Bregazzi. Uh -huh. or look at todd berry yeah they seem like they're talking slow yeah but they're actually talking fast in a way uh-huh and they have this really good steady i feel like my my rhythm's not steady i yeah. feel like i need i wish i had like a metronome 
or Joe does it too, Joe Zimmerman. Yeah. Uh, Nate Bergazzi, they have this, they seem like they're talking slow. Yeah. But they're actually talking fast. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of, I don't know, like you know where you are in the joke. Uh-huh. And you know when the end comes. And I feel like with me, like, yeah, I get excited and I start yelling and shit. But then at the end, you're like, oh, is he done? Okay. <laughs> he, uh, he really has some strong opinions about sea salt, you know? Um, <laughs> so I, I wish I'm trying to actually slow myself down yeah. and get, think more about the, the rhythm of the joke yeah. than, than I do. Because I think it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I'm also thinking of the fact that, like, you're talking about you struggle with amount of words and i can see because when you're a writer you you really want to do a great job of like setting scene with you know a lot of visual language and and mm-hmm. and tone and and kind of you know like bring us into the time period in which you're trying to do but with stand-up especially your jokes which are generally like shorter you're really just like bam you know it's not one liner but it's like the next the next one up from that it's like yeah, it's like medium. yeah so how medium are you line. how do you go about kind of setting aside your writer brain from your stand-up brain and edit your 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 jokes is there something that you do like is that just it happens naturally it happens naturally it's the when you talk when you say something your thoughts go through this filter naturally that yeah makes you edit out certain words or shorten it or it's yeah. just something that happens naturally from talking. Like I write, I'll write jokes down in my notebook or I'll write them on my computer. Yeah. Um, but it's mostly just so I don't forget them. Yeah. And then when I say them out loud, that's the, those are the words. Okay. You know? And I only go back to writing if I have to. Sometimes, sometimes I'll have a joke that's working, yeah. but not quite perfectly or like some yeah. parts are working, but other parts aren't. And then I'll go back and write it down again the way I've been saying it because then sometimes you can see see the problem because sometimes when you're saying it it's it's hard to view it objectively because you're saying it yeah you know what I mean you're in your own head or you know so sometimes I'll go back and write it down again the way I've been saying it are you disciplined in your joke writing like you are in your book writing but that's in some intelligent way of saying that but yeah like you 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 mentioned you mentioned the habit part of, of writing your books and then i remember in an interview you said i'm hard on the process but i'm easy on my on on the writing part of it like i give myself more leniency when it comes to the writing do you do the same for stand-up do you have a habit with stand-up and are you but is it or is it more like when it just comes and goes because you're not really writing it out as much as it needs to be kind of thing yeah, I don't. I don't have a rigorous habit for stand up, because um, I don't. I should. I okay. mean, every stand up should, but I yeah. don't because I don't have to. Like okay. when you write a book, yeah, I kind of have to be rigorous about it, partially because it's so a book's longer, mm-hmm. it's bigger, it's longer, and it's one thing. Yeah, and so you have to do something to make sure that you don't stop, and you yeah. have to do something to make sure that it all hangs together. Okay. And, with stand-up though, you kind of can not have a schedule and stuff just will sort of pop into your head and you go, oh, yeah. that's funny. And if you just yeah. sort of like naturally do that, you kind of just like generally end up with yeah. a certain amount of jokes 
you know, and yeah, and then also nobody might, you know, if I tell old jokes, as long as I have a certain amount of new material, yeah, you know, yeah. you can go and tell old jokes and nobody gives a shit. And if I don't release a new album, if it takes me seven years instead of six years, nobody cares, you know. Yeah. But like with book writing, I kind of have to be on more yeah. of a schedule because, you know, my agent's like, "Where's the book?" Or your editor's <laughs> like, "Hey, this is this is due. This was due today." You know, yeah. but nobody calls up and is like, "Where's the new joke? The joke was due. We have to send it. We have to send it to copy editing. What are you doing?" You know. Um, so I feel like it's a little. It's kind of easy to be. Yeah lazy with joke writing but are you probably shouldn't be are you thinking about a new album or or anything like a new thing you would release to the public whether it's via youtube or anything for stand-up yeah so i recently realized when i started doing i started doing stand-up again in december okay um i was like pandemic's over it was not <laughs> over i was like it's over and um it's fine it's over <laughs> so i went and looked and at like the my act yeah and how much i had that wasn't on the previous album and i realized oh i have enough for a new album so i tested it out in philly a couple months ago and it was just barely 45 minutes of okay. like new stuff okay so i'm gonna keep working on it and do like try to get like another 10 minutes okay and then um polish it over the summer and then i think i'm going to record a new, a new album in philly either late summer or early fall maybe oh nice September or something. well let me know i'll be there are you at helium again at helium again yep okay which, which reminds me we, we took a huge big tangent but going back to this philly funny thing because i love philly's funny story what it, uh, <laughs> i was like just i was like helium philly's funniest uh what um what did it feel like to win that like, did you feel like you were going to win it when you when you initially did your finals? I felt I felt good about it. I mean, I feel like everybody, every comedian, every year when you do Philly's Funniest, you're like, I'm gonna win. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of part of it being a comedian is you need to yeah. have the delusion. <laughs> you're like, this is gold. Yeah. I'm the yeah. best because otherwise you can't deliver your material with conviction. Yeah. So I feel like everybody's like, I'm gonna win this year, you know. Yeah. And I remember. I don't know if that was my third year doing it my second or third year the year before i had lost i can't remember if i placed or if i just lost i can't remember but i was all bummed out and i walked home and i said to myself i'm going to stop at every bar on the way home <laughs> bar and i like and i was wearing my suit and yeah. i was walking through i had to walk to fishtown yeah you know and i was like in these fishtown bars <laughs> you know uh yeah this was before fishtown was gentrified and i was you know drinking in a brooks brothers suit you know like the happy tap and people were like who the fuck is this <laughs> this sad guy is crying you know yeah. so um that year that year i felt pretty good i think i assumed i was gonna win that year okay because my act was good i was feeling good um, I think I assumed I was going to win that year, but I was really happy. I mean, obviously winning Philly's Funniest is not like a big deal to anybody except the people who live in Philadelphia, you know, <laughs> but yeah, but like I always loved, I loved Philly's Funniest. The way they used to do it was 
at Helium Comedy Club, they would pack the whole competition into yeah. two weeks, okay. I think. And every night there was another show. And so it was great because every night you could go. And so you'd go to the, you start with the prelims. Yeah. And the prelims, anybody can be in the prelims. All you have to do yeah. is pay $12. And so yeah. it would just be insane people, people that couldn't get on the open mic. Yeah. That weren't good enough to get on the open mic would be at the competition because they let everybody in. Yeah. And so you'd see this. Everybody's money is good here. <laughs> What's that? The everybody's money is good here. <laughs> yeah. So you'd see yeah. like crazy people that were horrible yes. that they're like, I know I can get up. Yeah. And so it was like these fascinating train wrecks. And then you get to the 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 semifinals, you know, where the comedians were or the quarterfinals and the, yeah. the comedians would get better and better. And so you would go every night. And some nights they'd have two shows back to back. And yeah. so you'd go with all your friends and you'd watch all the different rounds. And it was great. It was like exciting. Yeah. Um, and now they spread it out over the whole summer. Yeah. Um, there's so many people now. Yeah. Because there's so many people. Yeah. And um, I think also because like before they were doing Philly's Funniest and they would do it, you'd lose two weekends. Yeah. And it's like, well, you could have headliners yeah. like real acts on those weekends instead yeah. of being Philly's funniest yeah. and so um and there's more people and stuff so so anyways I always really loved you yeah. know yeah. just going and watching Philly's funniest it was a, yeah it was fun because you're you're now a father and a husband and time, time you know you're you're a good father from what I can understand like with you it's like I can understand like be, spending time with your kids very important to you is it really that or is there a is there a a, a a floor to what you will accept when you go out and do a show? And what is that? Especially if you had to travel. Oh, if I have to, it depends. Yeah. If, 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 if I have to like drive a long way and I'm not getting paid. Yeah. Drive to Philly. Yeah. Let's say you've been invited to Philly, not a helium show, but just drove to Philly to do it. Like the Norristown show, for instance, and they asked you to do that again. You have a floor now or just still any show goes at this point. I mean, well, when I say any show, it's pretty much any show. Like if it's really far away and it's not yeah. a lot of money, yeah. it's going to suck. I guess I would probably say no. What's, 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 what's the right amount of money to get you to do something? Like headline a show in the burbs of Philadelphia. I don't know. It depends. It depends how much time I'm doing. It depends how many okay. people are at the show. Okay. I don't I know. I ask this because it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, comedy is just, there's no union. There's no... No. You know, you don't, it's, there's a big secrecy around, unless someone volunteers how much money they've made from the weekend before you at a venue, it's very not, you know, hush hush or whatever. So it's, it is, it is interesting. So, but um, I just take what people give me and usually they give me enough. I'm like, okay. how much is it? All right, that's fine. <laughs> so, fine. Right, before we get into the compilation questions, I do want to say, you know, it's, it's amazing. You're, 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 you're still a young guy. And you've Thank you. you have such a huge body of work. You've created a lot of quality. It's not you, you. I mean, Simon Schuster is a huge publishing company. I mean, they just did Howard Stern's book last year. So it's like you're not independently releasing stuff yourself too. It's like your people want this from you. You have you know you have a great album, Delicate Man. I own it. It's amazing. You have great bodies of work. You know, with the with the um, this might hurt a bit, and the and the and the you know everything explained through flow charts, which I, I when you brought oh, the doors down, you actually brought that with you. I think actually got it. Then Home Alone Hard was funny, and the coloring book for Die Hard. Then you also do like graphic design things for like huge movies or books or whatever, like the mm -hmm. Miss, like the Miss Pedigree thing. Um, is is this 
drive, this work ethic to um, create so much, especially how young you are and the body of your you create up to this point, is that somewhat subconsciously due to the fact that you see how short life is with your sister. And this is your way of creating a legacy where your sister, outside of, you know, your parents and yourself, the legacy doesn't really, you know, I mean, you're, I'm sure you'll tell your kid about her, but there's not much there from a 12-year-old standpoint. Is there that need to create, to leave something behind because you realize how short life is? No, I've always liked making stuff. Um, so I don't think my work ethic was influenced by that. But I think that I'm a relatively happy person because I think the biggest influence my, my uh, sister's death had on me is that it made me a relatively happy person because I know, you know, any day when you're not sick or someone didn't just die, you know, it's a good day and you should enjoy that. You know, I think uh, when you have a family tragedy, it recalibrates your idea of what a a bad day is. So I think I, I think I am a happier person person i've had a lot of comedians tell me that i'm unusually happy for a comedian they're like well that's not a bad thing i don't think i mean about this, like, I don't. this whole demeanor of like comic you know gets old after a while so no i'm glad to hear that there's there's uh you know that so i appreciate you being open and honest about that i do appreciate that my last question is do you what is the dream what is if there's one thing that you want to accomplish in your life when it comes to comedy in a comedy what is it that you would like to do and what are you doing to progress to that goal you're trying to make me feel bad (laughs) (laughs) uh i don't i don't really have a i don't have a goal okay i just like just trying to do your best day by day yeah i just like doing i just like doing stand up trying to get better working on my jokes Good man. Trying to this was, better. I'm oh, sorry. Them. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. But you're right. Having a goal. I mean, I go to a friend's house. They're like, oh, I turned my wall into a chalkboard wall, you know? And they're like, oh, they write their, their, yeah. or they've got like a big dry erase and they write down their like, yeah. you know, goals and stuff. But I don't know. I'm, I, I think very small. I mean, right now my goals are I got a new album I got to do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working on those jokes, trying to get them good. And then I'm working on the Invisible Boy comic book. Nice. And then I'm like, those are two things. And they're both, they both take a lot of time. So I'm like, that's it. That's what I got on my plate. I appreciate talking to you. I appreciate you being open and honest and, and, and present on this interview and just be able to like answer my questions without being turned off. I know sometimes my questions are a little, you know, out there kind of thing. So I do appreciate agreeing to do this and the time that you took to do this. I really, really do. No you're problem. one of My those, pleasure. your jokes are really intelligent, clever, unique, and just outright hilarious. So I'm glad that you're still doing it, man. And I can't wait to see you very soon for that album. But I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. It meant a lot to me that you did this. I really do. Take care of yourself and I'll, I'll see you real soon. All right. I'll see you later. All right. Bye.